I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. This week, I'm your one and only host, Dr. Matt Bernico, bringing you the uh, the first uh, Magnificast in 2023. Uh, unfortunately, Dean couldn't be here, um, but I'm excited to introduce our very first guest. His name is Dean Detloff. <laughs> Dr. Dean Detloff. I'm sorry, I forgot. That's right. I just flew in from Havana, and boy, are my arms tired. <sighs> Man, so great to have you on the show. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I, I, as you can tell, I usually do a comedy show, but this time I'm going to talk about politics. And religion, yeah, that's that's really good of you taking a taking a break from your long and illustrious stand up career <laughs> to come talk to us about politics. That's yeah, great. I'm entering my sit down career. <laughs> that's great. Well, folks, don't be don't be alarmed. Uh, Dean, uh, the co host, will be back next week. But for this this week, we've just got Dean, the guest. Um, let's see. So before the new year, during the Christmas season, the pre Christmas season, Advent, some people call it. <laughs> <laughs> Other people just say Christmas season. I, that's fine. Um, we've been talking a lot about Cuba and uh, how bad the United States is, how bad the blockade is, and how interesting and uh, downright revolutionary Cuba is and how much we love it. Um, we've spent a lot of time uh, kind of getting into some of like the, the nooks and crannies of U.S. foreign policy. We've talked about USAID. We've talked about the blockade. We've talked about uh, religion in Cuba and all kinds of other things. Um, but you might be thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we had somebody who was in Cuba recently, really recently, like within the last six weeks, uh, who could come on the show and talk to us all about it? And uh, I've got to tell you the good news. That person is here, Dean Detloff. Uh, Dean, do you want to tell everyone what you were doing in Cuba? And then we'll kind of get into some some deeper topics. What was I doing in Cuba? I was doing all the things that you could do in Cuba. I went and had communist ice cream. We'll talk about more. Uh, we'll talk more about that for sure later. Uh, we were there to hang out. We went the week right before Christmas. We went for some solidarity, some sun, some vacation. We became Canadian citizens this year. And my big thing was I will go through all the work it takes to become a Canadian citizen if I can get a passport and go to Cuba. And it did materialize and we did do it by the end of the year. It was also there were so many things about it. My wife and I had our 10 year wedding anniversary and we decided we were going to do a big trip and it happened to be Cuba. Lots of reasons to be there. Uh, we were there for about, like I said, a week or so. And uh, it was great. I got to tell you, Cuba, the weirdest place I've ever been, hands down, which is more my fault than theirs. <laughs> but uh, I guess I should say I was a weird person being in Cuba, but uh, it was great. <laughs> it was a good time. 
<laughs> yeah, well, uh, that makes sense. Uh, you'd be a weird person no matter where you went. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't uh, blockade the weirdness. Um, no, that's all right. Yeah, that's cool. Um, well, of course, Dean and I have already talked about it in private, but now we're making this conversation public. I think it's really cool that you went, and I'm a little bit jealous. Um, but now, in the future, when people try to corner you and say, yeah, but have you ever been to a communist country? You can say yes, and you ate ice cream there. So that's yeah. something. That's um, right. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I did eat ice cream there, and I did bring you back some souvenirs, but I'm not going to tell you what they are until you come visit. Oh, damn. All right. I can hardly wait. That sounds amazing. Um, really excited. I hope it's a big uh, a Che hat, maybe? I don't know. It could be anything, and I'd be really happy about it. Um, well, it will be anything, so you're in luck. <laughs> Great. Just what I wanted. Anything. <laughs> so, okay, there's a lot to talk about, and maybe uh, we'll probably get into some of the fun stuff, but I feel like we probably should talk about the most important things, like the blockade and uh, how that felt being there. So okay, you're you're a Canadian citizen. You're not um, <laughs> you're not blotted out from the uh, the the book of eternal life uh, <laughs> because you're an American anymore. Um, but I don't know. Being there in Cuba, um, did you see the impacts from the blockade? And if so, I guess like what were they? How, how did the blockade look from the other side of the blockade? Yeah, well, I should say two things about it. I guess the first is that I'm not a Cuban person, which matters because when you go there as a tourist, the blockade affects you in touristy ways, but it does not affect you in a residential way. And there's all kinds of things to say about that, which we can talk more about. Um, so that's the one piece. And the second thing is because I'm not a Cuban person, I really can't speak to like the day to day, you know, like we stayed at a hotel, we didn't stay at someone's house, all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of ways that the blockade affects people in their daily life. For example, um, when we went, we had some contacts there and uh, we were just chatting about what should we bring, anything that would be helpful. And for example, they were like, we really need painkillers, antibiotics, uh, vitamins, like they can't get vitamins. It's super hard. Um, somebody really wanted a, a cell phone, which they had the money to buy, but couldn't buy it in Cuba. So like people often will travel or or get cell phones outside of the country and then have somebody bring them there and so on. So lots of really weird things like that, like shortages of strange stuff. Um, and that is like a, you know, part of people's daily lives. As like a tourist person, the blockade is very weird because as a result of those food shortages and everything else, like if you go to a restaurant and you sit down and you're like, I want this thing on the menu. Uh, oftentimes the person will be like, we don't have that. You say, okay, I want this other thing. And they say, you don't have that. And eventually, sometimes you get to a point where they'll be like, what do you want to eat? And you'll be like, I kind of want this. And they'll be like, all right, we're just going to make you this. Is that fine? And then you say, yeah, it's fine. Because that's like the food that they have. So <laughs> it's all very interesting. There's a bit of a sense of humor about it, but it's a challenge as well. Um, I, I would say, though, the biggest feeling I had about the blockade is like when you walk through Havana, parts of it feel like walking through like a war torn city or like a war zone, like buildings have just kind of fallen down and like not been repaired. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that like looks like it used to be in regular use and now just isn't like abandoned. I don't know, like water slides and stuff in the middle of the city. Like it's a very kind of strange environment in that way. Although I should say it never felt like unsafe really like, I never was like, we're going to get mugged here or something. But 
you can really tell, you know, the, the the sort of challenges of allocating very scarce resources that are also really hard to get are just kind of everywhere. Like it's hard to escape all that. Yeah. Um, I think it is important to, sorry, this is like maybe a minor point, but kind of a bigger point. Uh, you mentioned uh, the things that you brought, right? Like uh, painkillers and vitamins and stuff like that. Um, I think something that the United States says or people in the United States say is that, you know, like medicine isn't part of the blockade. Like that's not that's not uh, something that the United States is actively blocking yet. Uh, people were asking you to bring it. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the U.S. always says that their embargoes, they put it, doesn't affect food and medicine, but that is completely false. Like, it could not be further from the truth. Um, both those things are really hard to find, especially medicines. Like, we went through, um, like, we walked by pharmacies and stuff like that, and the shelves are just, like, empty. Um, one friend of ours uh, was like, can you just bring vitamin B? Because, like, there's this older woman in their community whose doctor was like, you really need vitamin B. Um, cause she has a deficiency and they just like, cannot get it anywhere. It's nowhere. And it costs like, you know, $20 at the grocery store for like a big thing of it here in Canada. So stuff like that is really surprising and, uh, really startling too. Like it's, it's a, a shock, I think. Um, also like inflation is super high in Cuba right now. Um, which is a combination of lots of stuff. Uh, there's been all kinds of currency changes. There was obviously the pandemic that had huge effects everywhere on inflation, but doubly so in a country that's blockaded. Um, and because of the blockade, Cuba also doesn't have access to foreign markets or the best prices uh, in the way that other countries do. So everything just kind of gets driven up. So even the food and medicine, uh, but particularly food that is in Cuba, is like massively high. Like, uh, I forget what it was exactly, but the uh, if you get like a, a dozen eggs or something like that, it costs, I don't know, close to like $9 Canadian, which is a lot of money in Cuban pesos, like probably close to a thousand pesos. So it's bizarre. Like, you know, the the they say it doesn't affect food and medicine, but it affects both access to it and even the price of it internal to the country. So it's, yeah, it's important to emphasize those basic necessities are in trouble. Yeah, yeah. You know, a few months ago in the United States, uh, if you went to a gas station uh, in, uh, in a rural place, uh, you'd oftentimes see, see these like, little stickers that people would put on the, the pumps that has a picture of Joe Biden on it. And it says, I did that, pointing to like how much the gas was. Right. And, uh, you know, all the libs would be like, uh, well, you know, it's not really Joe Biden doing that. It's actually greedy corporations, which is probably true. But um, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, great to see a type of uh, <laughs> not great, but. Uh, interesting to see a type of inflation that is actually Joe Biden's real fault that he could. Actually <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you could put a sticker all over the grocery stores in Cuba saying uh, I did that and you'd be right. Yeah, exactly. Joe Biden did do it. He should just stop. That's my opinion. Um, he should and he could. I mean, he could stop a lot of it. I guess uh, technically Congress has to vote on the blockade itself, but all the sanctions and stuff that Trump kind of used to tighten the noose, that's all stuff that Biden could just stop doing right now if he wanted to. Right, for sure. I mean, like, Okay, it, obviously it's not all Biden's decision, like you just said, but like uh, if you wanted to, Joe could definitely mobilize a lot of support to get the yeah. change pretty quick. You know, there's a whole thing. It's it's a lot. Um, okay, fine. <laughs> Joe Biden did it, and I'm mad about it. Uh, <laughs> Joe, please, I know that you listen to this podcast. Could you just stop? <laughs> please, stop Joey. Our Joe. second Catholic president ever, please. <laughs> just the Pope. He he know he knows. <laughs> he wants you to do it. Um. All right. Sorry. Let's get back on track here. Uh, I don't. Sorry, I don't like to. I don't like to digress with with guests on the show. Um, of course, yeah, I know that about you. 
Yeah, lights keep things real professional. <laughs> a tight 60 minutes. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm all about <laughs> this this one podcast here. Uh, okay, you were saying a minute ago that, uh, you know, walking through Havana is kind of like being in a war-torn country, and that's kind of sad to hear. Um, there's uh, <laughs> vacant water slides, which is a, tra- a tragedy, I think, for all people. Um, but I-, I was wondering if you could talk more about some of those, like, contradictions in Cuban society that you saw, like, you know, um, clearly because of the position that Cuba is within like the global capitalist order, things are not 100% cool communism, right? Uh, so I don't know, what are the ways that you saw that Cuba has had to like conform to its place in that, that larger system of global capitalism? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of contradictions in Cuban society. And I think what is what was really interesting to me is that everybody kind of knows that. <laughs> like uh, nobody out there is being like, uh, yeah, everything is 100% communist all the time. Uh, and in fact, even on like TV, like we watched a lot of Cuban television and so on, like it, it's all everybody's pretty open, like Cuba is struggling to kind of find its future. And, and there are competing visions too of what that looks like. Um, I w- I've been reading a ton of books about Cuba leading up to it. And when I since I've gotten back, and actually, uh, everybody is recommending the book, but for good reason. Helen Yaffe's book, We Are Cuba, is extremely good. There's a couple chapters in there about the economic reforms in Cuba that have happened in the last, like, decade or so. Um, So if you really want to get into the weeds of it, you can. But there are so many contradictions uh, in Cuban society that are imposed uh, from outside. So, for example, like, Cuba has a huge challenge getting access to foreign dollars because they're not supposed to have them, (laughs) not supposed to use them um, because of the blockade. And one major way of getting those foreign dollars is tourism, right? Um, During the special period and kind of afterwards, Cuba made a, a choice that is controversial to invest a lot more in tourism and to kind of turn itself into a, a tourist destination in the Caribbean, um, which was, uh, I think, a bit of a double-edged sword. And also something that, like, again, everybody kind of knows. Like, if you listen to people in the party talk about it, um, they will often admit that it is not an ideal solution, but it's kind of like they don't really have any other choices. So it's interesting because the way that kind of choice cashes out is, again, when you walk through Havana, like, you know, one minute you're in a neighborhood where, like, it looks pretty destroyed. Um, And the next minute you're, like, seeing a crane put up a whole new, like, brand new hotel. And that is really striking and challenging and, like, hard to sort of understand. Um, you know, if you're if you don't have any kind of context for like what's going on. And again, it's something to that, like we talked to all kinds of people when we were in Cuba. And it's something that basically everybody mentions that, you know, there are homes in disrepair. And nevertheless, there's like all this sort of buildup around tourists or like it's hard for Cubans to get whatever they want at the grocery store. But if you have money or if you're a tourist, you can go to a restaurant and order whatever you want. And it's probably going to be there, or at least some version of it will be there. So those contradictions are real. And it is like even uncomfortable, I think, sometimes being a tourist in Cuba, because the fact that you do have access to things that Cuban people don't in their own country is really bizarre and kind of strange. So you feel those contradictions everywhere. But again, it's it's kind of like 
I guess the impression I got is everybody sort of seems to have a sense that this is part of a long process that like the contradictions suck, but they are also not completely the, they're not like the fault of some idiot politician making bad planning choices. Like they are here in Toronto, for example, (laughs) right? Like they're, they're the result of uh, people trying to like come to terms with what kind of external pressures are forcing the Cuban economy to sort of move in different directions. And some people are mad about it. Like there are lots of folks who are like, we shouldn't go in that direction or, you know, are understandably pissed at those kind of inequalities. Like it's creating real inequality in Cuba. And that's true. But uh, yeah, it's a, a challenging and very big and complicated conversation, I think. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, as an American, there's only one thing on my mind ever and that's ice cream um i love it i love this this great frozen treat um one of my favorite things uh but i understand in in cuba you did have some uh some great socialist ice cream so what was that whole situation like it's true um ice cream is a big staple of uh cuban life i've learned it is everywhere you can find it all over the place and in particular there's this awesome ice cream park called capelia that was basically commissioned by Fidel Castro in the late 60s. Um, you got to have ice cream if you're going to have communism. It's just uh, just a big part of it. And so they did build a big ice cream park. And it's wild. Like, you can go buy ice cream at a store or a restaurant or, you know, a corner store or whatever. That's all fine. But Capella is where it's at. So, like, this ice cream park, man, it's awesome. You go... It has this great kind of modern, like extremely 1960s aesthetic. Like it looks like something out of the Jetsons. And uh, everybody lines up in lines that are like around the park. Like I think there's probably four or five different places where you line up and you just stand and wait with like a bunch of other people. And then they slowly call in like X amount of folks from the lines. And then you go in when it's your turn. We probably waited like 30 minutes and then you sit down and they come by and they ask what you want. And we were just like, we want three scoops of ice cream. It's great. You sit, you enjoy your ice cream along with all these other people. Uh, there were like a lot of kids and older folks hanging out and uh, you get your ice cream and go and you kind of give up your seat to the next like quadrant of people who are like coming to take your place. Uh, fantastic. Communist ice cream. If you're ever in Havana, Capella, it's, it's a whole experience. Uh, 10 out of 10. Highly recommend. You know, at first I was thinking like 30 minutes is kind of a long time for ice cream, but I guess that's socialism for you. But then I did reflect <laughs> on it a little bit further and like I'd be lying to myself if I if I didn't say there hadn't been times I sat in a, a Dairy Queen drive through for 30 minutes. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Uh, it's probably pretty, uh, <laughs> a pretty similar experience, uh, but you're yeah. not in the car, so even better. Oh, also like the kicker is, so like I said, you could go buy ice cream in a bunch of places. But the ice cream at Capella, like with the exchange rate, is like six cents. <laughs> like <laughs> it's basically free, and yeah. uh, you can just eat a bunch of it. So that's the other piece of it. Like you can have, you know, inflated ice cream, or you can wait thirty minutes and get ice cream for next to nothing. Uh, that's it, and it's next to nothing because the government subsidizes it. Is yeah, that right. That's right. That's incredible. It's communist See, ice cream. This is what seasoning means is all about, and. <laughs> People need to take this more seriously. <laughs> Why are we not doing this? Man, I should also say food in Cuba is so fascinating. Um, like I said, there's lots of shortages and people get creative. Also, like <laughs> tourist food in Cuba is very funny because they're trying to like make food that tourists would eat. So you can get pasta anywhere. 
You can get like meat dishes or whatever anywhere. But the best thing that you can get is Cuban pizza. Man, Cuban pizza, the crust is like doughier than regular pizza. And I don't eat meat, so I'd always get veggie pizza. And veggie pizza in Cuba is basically like, here's the crust. There's no sauce. Here's some cheese. And also, here are the vegetables we have in the kitchen. And it couldn't be better. It's fantastic. The The first one I had was like cucumbers and cabbage and like a handful of stuff. Uh, the second one I had was like green peas and lima beans on a, on a big pizza. Man, uh, you never know what you're going to get. But man, it is extremely good. I have to say. <laughs> uh, it sounds good. Um, I'm interested. I'm interested and I'm hungry as always. And pizza and ice cream. I mean, listen, don't let anyone lie to you about Cuba. They've got pizza and ice cream there. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What more do you need? <laughs> what more do you need? I mean, um, besides, like, Tylenol. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, great. So you're there. You experience the blockade on this other side. You got ice cream. You got pizza. That's great. Um, let's see. As as a person that lives in the United States, me, um, and uh, as a person who listens to my politicians always and takes what they have to say <laughs> with 100 percent uh, as 100 percent truth, um, I know that there's a lot of dissent in Cuba and there's always protests <laughs> and there's constantly people like being thrown in prison for that protest. Um, so what was your experience, though, as like a Canadian slash American visiting Were people that you talked to, like generally supportive of the revolution? Did you talk to people in the party? What would that look like? Yeah, we talked to all kinds of folks. Um, you know, the sample size is definitely a bit self-selecting, right? Like we spent is time, it more than 56 people. It, it was probably close to 50 people, maybe not 56. But, you know, okay. um, next time we'll we'll outdo USAID and we'll have yeah. a proper sample size. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, we like we talked to a lot of people who are explicitly pro-revolution and we went to places that were maybe more geared toward that kind of conversation. But at the same time, like we talked to people just on the street and people in the neighborhood and people where we were just wandering around or who you're kind of stuck on a bus with or whatever. And like I mentioned earlier, I was pretty struck by the openness with which Cuban people talk about their country, just like anywhere else. I don't know, except, well, I would say maybe it's even more than anywhere else. Like in Canada, in Toronto, it's pretty rare that I'll hear somebody just openly talking about the political situation in this country. Yeah. Um but in Cuba, people are talking about it all the time. Like, there's a lot of conversation happening. Um, the very first person that we met there in Cuba was just a guy on the side of the road who, like, <laughs> we were pretty obvious tourists, like, <laughs> pretty clear marks. Um, but uh, he was chatting us up and um, asking what we thought about Cuba. And, you know, we asked what he thought about it. And he was like, yeah, you know, Cuba, like, we're a poor country. And I find that challenging. But he was like, we have access to healthcare, to education. I got a, an education and I have a job. Um, and he was saying, unlike other Latin American countries that are also poor, he was saying with a lot of pride that like we don't have gangs, we don't have the mafia, we don't have drugs in Cuba that like cause a, a huge social problem the way they do in other countries. And, you know, you could tell that for him, like, he was really proud to sort of say that to us. Uh, and again, maybe he's just chatting us up because we're tourists. But <laughs> also, it's not like he has to, you know. Um, we did talk to a few people who were like, uh, yeah, Cuba is great if you're coming here on vacation, but it's really hard to live here. And that's true. Fair enough. Um, we talked to a lot of folks, too, who were like pro-revolution but had a lot of friends who had left the island and they were like i don't blame them you know like it, it is an austere kind of life and 
it's not easy. Um, so I think that is true. But like I said, there's a lot of open conversation about that. Uh, and I was really um, surprised to find that. I mean, what you don't find in Cuba, at least what I didn't find, is like <laughs> the stereotype of a communist society where everyone's looking around their shoulder to figure out like who's listening. Like there's none of that. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know, somebody is just going to talk to you on the street. Everyone is extremely friendly. And, you know, you're, you're going to hear somebody's opinion, kind of whether you like it or not, <laughs> in some cases. So, yeah, uh, we, we did hear people who were like, had le- legitimate grievances and complaints. Um, but yeah, we talked to, I would say, overwhelmingly more people who were like, I don't know, invested in it. Oh, I should say too, the the sort of standard feeling we got, we asked everybody what they thought about Fidel, and we asked everybody what they thought about Miguel Diaz-Canel, the current president. And universally, even among people who were, let's say, less than enthusiastic about the process, across the board, everyone was like, Fidel was an amazing person. And Miguel Diaz-Canel is not Fidel, but he is doing his very best with, like, the hand that he's been dealt. That was, like, we never heard anybody say something different than that. So that was also pretty revealing, I thought. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting that people were really, like, candid about some of that stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. What I'm about to ask you, it's probably not going to win any people over that are, like, skeptic because these places are all, you know, places that people are going to talk very positively about the revolution. But I know you went to a lot of interesting sort of museums and, like, cultural areas that are associated with the revolution. Um, do you want to talk about your experiences in those? I'm really interested to hear about Memorial de la Nuncia, but um, you can talk about, you know, whichever one in whatever order you want to. Yeah, we went to a bunch of different museums. And one thing that's also really weird about Havana is, like, there's a museum to everything in that city. There's, like, a museum to the revolution, like you'd guess. There's a Fidel Castro museum. There's lots of places. But there's also, like, you'll just be wandering around the street, and there'll be, like, and here's the museum to pharmacy in Havana. And you're like, okay, <laughs> cool. This is an old pharmacy. Great. Or you're walking around, and it'll be like, here's a museum to Simone Bolivar. Uh, and you go in there, and it's, like, I guess it's true. Just a random museum for a Bolivar here in Havana. Like, <laughs> extremely weird. So I don't know what it is about that city, but they do love a good museum. Uh, The three big ones we went to, one was the Museum of the Revolution. The indoor part was closed, sadly, so that's on my list next time. But they do have an outdoor exhibit, which has the grandma, uh, the boat that the revolutionaries used to get back to Cuba that sank. Um, It's in a big glass case. That is pretty striking. Um, And then surrounding the grandma is basically like a bunch of, uh, I guess, like um, like evidence from the revolutionary period and then later on. So, for example, you can see there's like a Jeep that Fidel Castro rode around on. They got the Jeep. There's a, <laughs> there's like a tank that some farmers made out of a tractor. They got the tank. Um, there is like wreckage from the plane that was shot down down during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Like all that stuff is just like there, which is pretty wild. It's very weird to go to like a war museum and be like kind of interested (laughs) instead of like, (laughs) man, this is some imperialist garbage, you know? So uh, that was pretty striking. So the Museum of the Revolution outside was cool. Um, We went to uh, this place called the Centro Fidel Castro Ruiz, which is like a Fidel Museum and Cultural Center. That was really fascinating. Um, It kind of walks you through Fidel's life, the revolution. Uh, There was a copy of uh, the copy of La Dada Sea that Pope Francis gave Fidel is there. Um, Some gifts from Fray Beto are also there, which was pretty cool to see. 
man, side note about that, I guess. Uh, Fry Beto is everywhere in Cuba. Like, I, you know, Fry Beto is a hero of mine. Cool Brazilian priest. Love him. Uh, the book Fidel and Religion is in, like, every single bookstore. Um, you can see pictures of Fry Beto just all over the place. Like, whenever there's, like, a collage of photos with Fidel, like, Fry Beto is there somewhere. So, I don't know. He's a, a hero of the people, I guess. Um, anyway, the center is great. Um, one very funny thing about it, uh, they, the folks who worked there, we told them that we're from the U.S. And they were really psyched about that, that we were going to come and learn about Fidel Castro. And uh, they were all <laughs> very interested to hear what we thought about the museum. And that was really kind of a unique experience, like going through it as U.S. citizens alongside a bunch of Cuban folks. Um, I think they were curious about our reactions and we were also curious about what they thought about us being there. So lots of interesting <laughs> conversations <laughs> going on there. Um, and at the end, this one woman who uh, was working there, we were just talking with her. She said, the one place that you have to go next is a place called the Memorial de la Denuncia. Uh, so like the Memorial of Denunciation. And so we said we have to go. Obviously, she told us to go. And so we went, we got our like our RPG quest. We went to fulfill it to get our experience. <laughs> um, and uh, man, this was probably the weirdest one. Uh, it is like they stress to us, first of all, it's not a museum. It's a memorial. And it's basically the whole place is designed to uh, kind of show us terror against cuba and it is like the most somber place i've probably ever been like the first room that you walk into is literally a bunch of declassified cia documents like showing how the cia tried to like kill fidel castro and do all this other stuff um and as you go through it kind of gets like progressively more intense like there's some exhibits about operation peter pan like we talked about on the show um, there is an exhibit about a plane that had been um, bombed at, at one point, and there were like the bloodied clothes of the victims, like kind of curated in this really arresting way. Um, there's like a whole section about economic warfare and the blockade, which they represent with like barbed wire. And yeah, the whole thing is like if you were like a curation person, like you're really into museums, it's a place to go for sure. There's a lot of kind of interesting ways of just talking about imperialism there. And again, that was also a place where like being a U.S. citizen was really wild. Um, I think they were like equal parts, <laughs> like kind of surprised that we were there and also very interested to like share with us what was going on. So yeah, I've never been to a museum dedicated to you, like the victims of U.S. terrorism. And that was a really unique experience for sure. Yeah, that sounds so wild. Uh, good for them. It seems like a good way to communicate some of that. And uh, it makes sense that, you know, if they knew you're from the United States, they would send you there. Um, I I mean, I don't know. I know from the experience of just doing this podcast and being an annoying leftist person in real life that people don't know about all of the like wild examples of state-sponsored terrorism from the United States against Cuba. So it's uh, great to have something to kind of tell people that. But it'd be cool if people could go from the United States very easily <laughs> and yeah. go find out for themselves. It would be. Um, and that was also something that we heard while we were there too, is people were interested that we were there from the U S um, and also they were sharing like, Oh man, like, you know, back when Obama was president, there used to be more U S people here and like Cuban people love uh, cultural exchange. They love having U S citizens learn about their side of the story as they like to put it. 
Um, we went on like a, a tour of the hotel we stayed at, the Hotel Nacional, which is like an old Batista era hotel. And uh, now it's owned by the state. And it's so fascinating because like they in the tour, they're like talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis because in the hotel, like on the grounds, there are trenches to a bunker, like in the event that it was bombed. And there were also like sort of landing pads or not landing pads, but cement areas where there used to be uh, anti-aircraft guns. And uh, the tour guide was so fascinating because she's like explaining the whole story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, she's talking about JFK and Khrushchev. They're having this big conversation. And then she's like, where's Fidel in this whole conversation? And she's really trying to like leave it to her audience to sort of draw their own conclusion and... uh yeah, it was it was a, a really unique experience anyway to be sort of led by Cuban folks through the mm. history of what's going on in their country. <laughs> That's really neat. Um, all right, let's we're, we're taking a turn in the conversation. Um, uh, dear listeners, engage with me in a in a thought experiment. Um, so it's no longer 2023. It's 1970. And uh, your your best pal, Dean, who you go to church with, just came back from Cuba. And now you're sitting in a church basement, sipping Kool-Aid out of a paper cup. And he's got a uh, a big slideshow ready for you. And he's going to tell you about Christians in Cuba and what what's going on there. Um, <laughs> just just like the old days. Um, <laughs> so while you were there, you like, you met up with a comrade from the student Christian movement in Cuba. And, um, that's an interesting thing for sure. So you should definitely talk about that for a bit. Um, our listeners might recall that in a previous episode, we talked a lot about USAID and a report they did on, uh, on Christians in Cuba, um, which is, uh, a report done with a very small sample size, uh, hence the joke earlier. Anyways, the, uh, the report concluded, um, that uh, Christians who are in support of the revolution are uh, are fake. And I'm, that sounds like I'm exaggerating. That sounds like I'm just being mean for no reason. But that's literally what it says. <laughs> <laughs> that Christians who support the revolution are all fake. They're all just like secret government agents. So anyways, Dean, what is your read as a person who met Christians in Cuba? Are they fake? Uh, yep. I did meet a handful of Christians in Cuba and they are not fake. Uh, they're better Christians than me. They know more about theology than me. They're nicer than I am. Uh, just good folks. Uh, we met in particular Jorge Gonzalez, who is the president of the student Christian movement in Cuba. Uh, he is also a seminarian um, and uh, we had a lot of really interesting conversations with him about the ecumenical movement in Cuba. You know, what is it like to be a Christian there? Um, he was really involved in the family code uh, organizing, um, trying to get that passed and really thinking through the the theological parts of it. Um, he met with uh, Miguel Diaz Canel uh, as part of that that effort to get the family code passed. So um, a really engaged person and also a, a member of the Young Communist League there. He had a, an interview in uh, Rebel Youth in Cuba, the kind of Young Communist publication. Uh, that came out about being a Christian while we were there. So a really interesting fella, uh, good guy. Um, we spent a lot of time talking with him about Christianity uh, in, in Cuba and, and what's going on. You know, what's Fidel like again? <laughs> what's Miguel Diaz-Canal like? All that kind of stuff. Um, one really kind of interesting observation that he had, though, that really stuck with me and I think that I've continued to think about is we were asking, you know, what's it, what's kind of his feeling about Cuba now? Like, theologically thinking about it, what's he reflecting on? 
And the way he put it is the Cuban people are going through a crucifixion. And that is the moment that like it's a crucified people and they're on the cross. And he was saying, like, it's really hard to have hope in Cuba. And even as a Christian, it can be really difficult. And he said the key, though, is that Christians do believe in a resurrection. And like that is the language through which he's interpreting the realities of his country. And I found that really impressive and, and moving. Um, we met a handful of other SCM folks, uh, especially when we went to the Martin Luther King Center, which we can talk about in a little bit. Um, lots of interesting work between all those kind of ecumenical type Christians. They're sort of all uh, <laughs> doing work together is the impression that I got, which was really neat. But uh, all that to say, they're not fake Christians. Uh, they're actually very good ones, <laughs> very good, authentic Christians. And uh, it was really neat just to be able to... Um, you know, participate uh, a little bit in some conversations uh, around what it's like to sort of theologically interpret the the current sort of challenges in that country. Yeah, that's cool. That's such a cool thing to hear. Uh, a member of the Young Communist League and the Student Christian Movement, both together. <laughs> it does really exist. Uh, it feels very <laughs> edifying just to even know that. Um, I don't think that people in the United States probably are very familiar with the student Christian movement. What, what is that? And how does it look in Cuba? Like, like, what uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's good to actually talk more about that because there is a student Christian movement kind of affiliate in the U S but it's called something different. I forget what it is, but it's their connection to the, the world Christian student federation. Anyway, in Canada, it's also called the student Christian movement. And so it's like a more, the branding is the same, I guess, but they're all part of the same global federation. So it exists kind of in the U.S., but not in the same way. Um, at least I was never part of it in the U.S., so I probably shouldn't speak to it. But uh, in Canada, um, it is a really amazing group of progressive Christians talking about all the things that you want to hear Christians talk about. <laughs> they are explicitly anti-capitalist. They create a lot of safe spaces for uh, queer and racialized people. Um, really amazing folks. And it's the same in Cuba. Um, they, like I said, did all this mobilizing around the family code. Uh, the student Christian movement is also doing a lot of work on fundamentalism, which is on the rise in Cuba. They are preparing different kinds of materials, publications about like biblical hermeneutics, how to kind of think differently about sexuality, um, creating more spaces for uh, formation for both like pastors, but especially young people. Um, and I think also the student Christian movement is really unique in Cuba because it is part of that broader revolutionary youth movement. Um, and that's, you know, a very specific kind of thing <laughs> for Cuba. They, they have a strong tradition of having revolutionary student movement in Cuba, even dating back to the, you know, the 50s when um, Fidel and the rest of them were getting going. Fidel himself was part of the student movement. So the student Christian movement sees itself as part of that kind of united front um, you know, building the revolution, deepening the revolution. So they do a lot of the same kind of stuff that you'd find in an SCM somewhere else, but they have this kind of unique uh, function and role also to be a sort of Christian voice in that broader revolutionary coalition. That's really cool. What a thing. Um, dang. It's like a pretty hopeful thing to hear about. I don't know that people are really figuring, you know, um, how Christianity and like really uh, radical social movements can kind of go together such cool it's it's a cool idea though that you'd have like literature and like organizing around like christianity and like human sexuality or something it's such mm -hmm. a um 
a pretty powerful idea, one that I think is uh, sorely needed in North America for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Another big, uh, a big piece of like the story of Christianity in Cuba is the Martin Luther King Jr. Center. Um, it's uh, it's a place that exists in Cuba that carries Martin Luther King Jr.'s name, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't know. How would you describe it? What kind of work were they doing? What did you do there? What did you see? Man, it was amazing. It's an amazing place. Um, if you want to know more about it in our Cuba zine, um, Jim Hodgson wrote a little article that's included in there. And it explains just a little bit more about the origins of it, what they do, and so on. So you can check that out for sure. And I think Jim has talked about it on the show, too, in some past episodes. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a totally different thing to see the space, for sure. They do all kinds of stuff. They do everything from distributing materials in their community. They're attached to a church that's there. And so the church and the center sort of work together. Um, so they distribute, like... Uh, you know, medical supplies, food, all that kind of stuff. And they're an NGO, so they get support from all kinds of international places like the United Church of Canada, for example. Um, So they have some access to funding that way. And they're unique, I think, too, because it's a center that is not actively oppositional toward the government (laughs) and is doing that kind of work. So that is really interesting. Um, They also have a, a kind of theological voice in Cuban society. So maybe similar to the SCM, they're trying to figure out, like, what is a Christian sort of role and posture in a society working towards social justice um, and kind of uh, the the movement is kind of like, or the center, I guess, seems to have sort of two prongs. Like one is doing a lot of popular education. So organizing, training on how to organize, um, community organizing, all that kind of stuff. And then the other side is building an ecumenical movement, trying to bring together churches in the country to have a unified kind of Christian participation in trying to improve life in Cuba. So they have things like workshops that they do there. They provide community meals. They uh, they have a publication that goes out. Um, Lots of really unique, interesting projects going on. Um, they too were doing a lot of stuff around fundamentalism. Like that seems to be a really big uh, thing on the radar of progressive Christians that we were talking with there, that it's a a growing challenge, um, not necessarily new to Cuba, but, you know, fundamentalism is kind of finding a political voice in Cuba. And so they're working hard to to think that through and and think about how to sort of meet it on its own terms and, and meet it too with, with some empathy and sympathy. That was a big thing that came through um, trying to really parse out like, why are people this way? How can we communicate in a way that's effective? Um, and I was talking with some folks who worked there uh, a little bit as well. Um, shout out to uh, Jay and Alejandro who are not listening to this podcast, but (laughs) if they ever do, (laughs) they speak English, thankfully for me. Um, It was really neat to kind of listen to them to talk about some of the work and conversations that are happening there and really challenging ones. Like um, we were talking a little bit about a session where uh, they were talking about biblical ideas of sexuality and so on. And like sometimes in those conversations, people like get up and leave because they just like don't want to be challenged on that. Um, And so it's it's a place that's also not afraid to like, you know, create an environment for those kinds of difficult conversations to happen. Um, So, yeah, lots of like it has a a bit of a social role, the center in particular, um, by doing direct mutual aid and so on. It has a a public education role. 
And then maybe the last piece is it has that real international connection, like uh, Pastors for Peace, who we've talked about on the show and uh, talked with on the show in the past. They have a strong relationship with the MLK Center. Um, Oh, that is really interesting, too. Pastors for Peace, as we've talked about before, was founded by Lucius Walker, a reverend um, in New York. Really amazing guy. Uh, I was surprised to find there are also pictures of that guy everywhere in Cuba. Like, at our hotel, there was a picture of Lucius Walker. (laughs) And in, like, a magazine that someone gave us at the Fidel Castro Center, uh, it's like a magazine for kids. Um, They just, like, gave it to us to have and kind of take with us. Um, he's like listed in the back alongside like a bunch of other people who are like cool and famous and visited Cuba. So I I don't know. He has some kind of like reputation that I guess I didn't really know about, uh, before Mm -hmm. going there. But anyway, uh, MLK center, really amazing, fascinating community project of Christians in Cuba. All right. So the blockade is brutal. We know that already. And Joe Biden did it specifically, but they do have ice cream. They do have pizza. (laughs) You know, sometimes. <laughs> and they also have <laughs> real, real Christian people who are not fake um, and who are doing really interesting work uh, organizing people against, not against, I mean, against fundamentalism, I guess, as a reactionary type of politics. Um, that's all neat. Uh, but now you need to tell me what the big, what, what your big picture kind of takeaways are from this whole situation. Like, <laughs> as a person from the US, uh, I don't know, what are your big thoughts and takeaways from Cuba? Like, what do people in the U.S. need to know about this place? Um, and you need to tell them specifically because they can't go there, at least not <laughs> Well, maybe the first thing to know is actually you can go there. You can go to Cuba as a U.S. citizen still. Um, there are all kinds of things that you have to kind of keep in mind. Um, but it is legal for you to go. And you can get in touch with people like Pastors for Peace if you want to go. So that's one important thing. Um, it's not completely inaccessible. And I think actually going to Cuba is the best way to get to know it. People, like I said, are extremely friendly. They are eager to get to know people from other countries. Um, they are normal, <laughs> regular people just trying to live their life uh, like in any, any other country. People who are having a good day, a bad day, so on and so forth. Um, I think that was probably one of my biggest takeaways is that the Cuban people are extremely resilient, but they are also being like pushed to the limit. And it is cruel, like it's very unfair, very unnecessary. And I think that is so frustrating. Like you can tell that people in Cuba are exhausted. Um, That was probably one of the biggest like feelings I had is uh, there's a lot of joy in Cuba. You know, when you're walking through Havana and like the school day is over, like kids are running around, they're all playing soccer in the street. Like it's not like people are having, you know, no fun. Um, there's actually a lot of fun going on in Cuba in spite of everything, but it feels just kind of like, man, it doesn't have to be like this. That was a a huge takeaway. But, you know, one thing I I mentioned, the water slide, uh, (laughs) the defunct or water slide and disrepair. Uh, one kind of thing that I reflected on when we were in Havana is like the whole city looks like it is designed to be just a great time. Like from the way neighborhoods are set up to the way that like there are really huge, beautiful public spaces, it just looks like a place that people want to be. And there are a lot of big public projects that are designed to to like help people have a good time. And some of them are still going strong, like Capella, right? This ice cream place. Uh, But also like there's this big water slide that you can tell at some point was a blast. Like kids must have been having a great time. It looks like such a beautiful like 
uh, way to spend an afternoon just kind of on this water slide in the middle of the city. But it is not running now, and it's not going to run as long as there's massive austerity and, and blockades and so on and so forth. And I think that was also a big takeaway is like, there's so much potential for that country to just be like, not just a place of justice and and kind of equality, but also a place of just like <laughs> innovations and having a really good time. I really felt that way <laughs> in Cuba. And I think uh, we're all doing ourselves uh, a disservice by not allowing Cubans to really like teach us how to have uh, a lot of fun in urban planning. So uh, we got to we got to stop the blockade so we can also learn how to make fun cities. That was a big feeling I had in Havana. Oh, man. That's really cool. <laughs> I'm into that. Uh, I like I like the idea. I mean, if the uh, if the ice cream kind of sets any precedent, a very cheap water slide would be great. Um, the people's water slide <laughs> sounds fantastic. Not for me specifically. I'm not a big fan of uh, water slides, but just I get it. Generally, they're great. <laughs> I'd go down at once or, th- or 13 times maybe. Um, all right. So that's great. Uh, people in the United States need to know about that. Um, there's joy in Cuba. There's beauty in Cuba. Um, there's also lots of hardship, and it's all Joe Biden's fault um, and some other people's fault, too. But um, maybe another question is, like, speaking kind of more in, like, the religious register, what should Christians in North America know about Cuba? And, like, what kind of direction can we maybe take from Christianity there in, in terms of, like, uh, you know, like as, like, a social movement or, or something? Yeah, I think I'm trying to figure that out myself. What what do I, as a Christian in North America, need to know about Cuba? Um and the biggest sort of thing that has stuck with me is the the sort of deep commitment that the Christians we talked with have to a revolutionary way of life was really impressive. You know, when you live in a place like Canada or the U.S. and you're like, I'm a Christian and I think capitalism is bad and maybe even communism might be good, you are a complete weirdo. And in Cuba, like... I don't know. There's just kind of a normalization of that. Like, of course, you think that because you're a Christian, you live in Cuba and you want Cuba to do well and you're not like a conservative. Of course, you would want these identities to sort of go together. I think that is a big takeaway that like there are countries in the world where it is completely normal to be a Christian who thinks that you should rationally plan your economy. (laughs) I think that is like um, a pretty cool and uplifting sort of experience. Um, so that's a big one. Uh, the other one maybe is like, I think if we try to think through a country like Cuba theologically, like the way that Jorge expressed it to me, that Cuba is a country where, you know, it is, it's going through a moment of crucifixion, uh, that should encourage us to think about how to, you know, um, like, like Aya Curia says, like how to take Jesus off the cross, how to take the crucified peoples off the cross, that there's nothing necessary about that kind of suffering. Um, and it should just be ended. You know, I think that is a huge takeaway that as Christians, we have some resources available to us to think about, like, our complicity in crucifying an entire population. And we should think about what side we want to be on in that kind of uh, scene. You know, like, where do we want to be seen and, and how do we not want to direct our energies, especially if you live in the United States, right? Like, it is the the reason that Cuba is suffering the way that it is. So, I think Christians need to think very hard and very carefully about what it means to uh, to confront that reality um, using all, all the tools available to us, whether it's theology or churches or, you know, 
whatever organizing spaces that we have, uh, the blockade is just so, so cruel, so pointless, so unnecessary and extremely, uh, <laughs> Jesus would hate it. I think we need to be clear <laughs> about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. You know, something that's, uh, I'm thinking about and I wasn't there, so who knows if I'm saying anything that's right. But, um, thinking about Christianity as like an organ for like, um, popular education around, you know, pretty, I think, I think things that are like common Christian commitments, you know, around like human dignity or like healthcare or, you know, uh, types of democratic politics and so on. Like that is such a cool idea. And I think that having like the revolutionary commitment too to socialism is something that is um, really a detriment to Christians organizing in similar kinds of veins in the United States. You know, there's there's all kinds of I don't need to I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus at this moment, <laughs> but like there are all kinds of sort of like progressive Christian organizations in the United States who I think like, um, you know, who that, that aren't explicitly socialist or not socialist at all. Right. Just generally progressive or, or whatever. Right. All kinds of them out there. There's a few small ones even in my city and they're fine and they're nice people. And I think they have a lot of like good intentions and they do good work. But, like, without a commitment to, like, a real political horizon that has some type of concrete existence or, like, you know, actually exists as a type of project, uh, I think a lot of times uh, doing, you know, work just becomes extremely <laughs> watered down, <laughs> you know, for maybe lack of a better word. Or uh, it gets weighed down, like, the, the like the, the liberal aspects of politics where, uh, you know, you have to convince people individually to, to do something or, or whatever. All I'm trying to say here is I think that socialism in Cuba gives Christians as like a social force and political force, maybe some like uh, like a leg up on the on the situation already that uh, that people in the United States don't have because they don't have a, you know, a concrete political project. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, Sergio Arce, who is one of the first Protestant pastors to really embrace the the revolution as it was happening and he is also one of the brains behind the ecumenical movement. So, you know, he's kind of a, a figure, I guess, in the history of um, some of these other Christians we were talking about. Sergio Arce had this interesting essay I read before I went where he was saying the revolution is actually an opportunity for Christians in Cuba to destroy the idols of capitalism and be liberated from that kind of captivity of Christianity, that, that capitalism is kind of penned in Christianity. And, you know, like we interpret our faith through a capitalist lens because we live in a capitalist society. And so Arce was saying, everything else is getting liberated. Why can't Christianity get liberated too? And what will that mean to be Christians in that kind of liberated zone, liberated state? And I think that was such a profound question for him to ask and something that he spent a lot of time thinking through. And now, you know, several decades later, after something like that question was first posed, I think you're seeing it in the revolutionary sections of Christianity in Cuba. Um, it means being liberated from other reactionary forces like patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia, all those kinds of things, right? Like it's, it is an advanced section of Christianity that is also contending with uh, regressive forms of Christianity still in that society. And I think like that is such a huge opportunity for those of us who are still struggling through uh, capitalism in our own way in these countries. Like how do we kind of learn from folks who've had, you know, several decades of basically being anti-capitalists doing theology in an explicitly anti-capitalist way. 
Like, you know, it's like it's like a rare book you see through like a theological book publisher these days in the US or Canada that has anything to say about capitalism at all, first of all. Mm-hmm. And secondly, like if they do, chances are they're not concluding that book by saying like, and that's why we need to build a socialist society. Like on the other hand, in Cuba, like <laughs> every book getting published in that country is like, and that's why socialism is important, <laughs> including like Christian ones. So I guess uh, that's a really important piece for us, too, is to say, like, you know, for all the challenges that Cuba has, like, they are so far ahead in so many other ways. And we kind of need to, like, catch up, I think, theologically as well. Dang, that's a pretty good word. Um, I'm into that. Let's catch on up. Um, All right, folks. Uh, Dean, the co-host, will be back next week. And uh, you can look forward to that. Uh, but uh, Dean, the guest, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Great to have you on. Um, thanks for having yeah. me. It was great. Love the show. Um, first time, long time listener, first time <laughs> guest. Uh, really, really love uh, you, especially Matt. Um, just think you really yeah, thanks, bring thanks. good energy, good vibe. Um, appreciate how on track you are with these kind of interviews. And it's just been uh, fantastic to be here. I think you should go solo. Um, but I think out of the kindness of your heart, you should still like split the Patreon money with your previous <laughs> co-host. Um, I think that's going to be a great direction for the show. Yep. Sounds, I, I'm glad you're saying all the things that I'm always thinking. Um, all right. It's, uh, I committed myself to a, a tight 60 minutes and that that's it right there. So, um, again, Dean, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Magnificast also. And uh, if you want, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you want to know more about Cuba, you can go get our Cuba zine at bit.ly slash cubazine. It's out there for free. Just go grab it and download it and show your friends and print it off and then show us too because we want to see that. Um, great. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong and our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have